Okay, so today I'm uh, very pleased to have special guest Catherine Cox. And before we get to Catherine, I just want to go through some of her stats. Um, so two times world champion, uh, one time gold medalist for the Commonwealth Games. She's one of only four people that's a centurion for the uh, Australian netball team, the Diamonds. Is that right, Kath? Only four it of you? It is, yeah. yep. Um, born in New Zealand, but played for Australia. We'll get to that later on. Um, AIS scholarship holder. Uh, what else have I got here? Uh, retired in 2014, had a stage show, The Centurions, which I want to talk about a little bit later on as well. Um, is very active on social media, and my girls are extremely jealous because you have a blue tick on your Instagram. Oh. So that may be your biggest uh, uh, win in their eyes. So, so welcome to the Career Conversations podcast, Catherine Cox. Oh, thanks for having me, Craig. I'm very excited to chat with you. It's been a long time coming. It has been a long time coming. So well, I, I was going to start with, I remember the first time I met you, you were dating my boy, uh, my brother, not my boyfriend, my, my boyfriend. brother at the time. Um, you guys were scholarship holders at the Institute of Sport and you came to our little house in Warners Bay and you kicked our ass in the backyard uh, basketball court shooting. I'd never seen anything like it. So it was amazing. That is a funny memory because I don't remember that at all. <laughs> very... Um, well, it was, it was almost uncomfortable because I think given I was coming for the first time to the house, it was like all the friends had come out to check me. <laughs> I remember it being a room full of you guys. So it was a bit awkward, but yeah, so, you, you, didn't get it, you didn't get it as bad as my wife, Amy. I remember our first date, we came back to the little house in Warners Bay and, and mum and dad were having a barbecue and there was relatives galore and she got to walk the gauntlet and, and meet everyone and she's still with me today which is crazy so she mustn't have scared everyone mustn't have scared her off there you go all right so let's let's start with your netball career so it's it's quite illustrious so you you were tell me about Catherine cox 10 year old girl hills district netballer were you, were you good back then were you a standout as a as a junior God, no. I was, the only thing I really had going for me then was that I was tall. tall. Um, I wasn't overly tall, so I wasn't a baby giraffe or anything like that, thank God. And I've seen a few baby giraffes in my time since coming through the, <laughs> the national team. But I was semi-coordinated, which I think was helpful. But nipple wasn't, I mean, I love to play, but it wasn't so much the love of the game so much as the love of a team sport. Yeah, okay. Um, I mean, that's still, that was the reason that I continued to play for so long. I retired at 38 for long innings, but it was because just of that team environment that I love so much. I think I'm, I'm similar in terms of not as highly skilled, but I played basketball till I was close to 40 and uh, people ask me now if I miss it and I say, no, I don't, but I miss just hanging out with my mates. 100% and that's why I'm so fortunate now, the job that I do, and we'll talk about that a bit later because mm. I still to see all those mates but without the training so it is actually the dream job. <laughs> you get the good bits yeah absolutely and so um in terms of the the netball career at the start did, were you in rep teams in the hills district or or did you when how did how did you get spotted i suppose was the question that i'm asking well i think the the thing is i mean i didn't start till i was actually 11 so in terms of you know where junior netball was start that's actually that's quite late um and i started because my sister was playing and she wasn't so much playing netball but doing cartwheels and laughing with a friend i said the whole team thing was the reason that i wanted to be a part of it and i was good at it straight away because i was a lot taller than everybody else and obviously when you're 11 and you're you're huge it's got some really big benefits in the game of netball yep. 
Um, I was a defender though for my whole junior career. So I played all my junior reps um, as a defender and my first, I think, Catholic schoolgirl state team as a defender as well. Tried for New South Wales reps as a defender. Never got through um, then as a defending player, but uh, it was about 16 that I got thrown up the other end and trying to shoot a goal. How, how did that happen? Unheard of. Well, it was just a coach that saw me playing and, I mean, I was a decent defender, but I wasn't good. So I guess she just thought she'd try me out the other end of the court and did and, and stuck with me there though. I hated it. I didn't want to be up that end and complained <laughs> all the time and wanted to move clubs and became a bit of a brat about the whole thing. And um, she just persisted with me there. And I mean, thank God she did, as it all turned out. But trying to shoot a goal back then was, I couldn't hit water if I fell out of a boat. <laughs> Horrible. And it was a really, really hard process. Um, but then, you know, the rest is history, I guess, after that. Yeah. So tell me about um, landing a scholarship at the Institute of Sport. How did that occur? Yeah, look, again, I mean, I... It's not until I look back now and think how lucky I was in terms of my career. It wasn't hard. Um, I, you know, made team after team after team. I made teams early. I was one of the youngest ones picked in the Open New South Wales team. Um, so the selection into the AIS didn't really come as a shock for me. Um, I was probably more excited about being away from home at 18 and living for athletes yep. with no supervision than um, actually being there to you know, pursue my career as an elite athlete. Um, and then it was the same thing. I, I made the Australian team for the first time at 20, which I think is one of the youngest players to ever do so. And But again, it, it wasn't hard. I kind of just uh, was waiting for the selection to happen. Um, so and, why do you think that was? Why was well, it so think, easy for I, you? Well, I think I was just, you know, as I mentioned before, I was quite tall. I wasn't overly um, uncoordinated. I was certainly a lot softer. Um, when I was younger in terms of, you know, being able to catch a hard ball or throw a hard pass. But as soon as you kind of get elevated into a, a level with elite players around you, you learn fairly quickly that that's where your skills need to improve. But the, that didn't last long because that's not an attitude that, mm. or um, a mindset that lets you get to the top and stay there. So I, I got dropped within a year of being in the Australian team. It was the best thing that ever happened to me. Yeah, okay. Good lessons to be like. Were you at the Institute at the time? I was at the Institute at the time, um, or it was the following year, and uh, being dropped was the best thing ever because I actually thought, oh, hang on a minute, I need to work hard if I want to be here, which was an attitude I, pro I thought I had at the time, but, um, you know, reality was that I didn't really. I wasn't working as hard as a lot of other people, and that was the first time that I realised I needed to, um, and, uh, you know, that was the attitude change I needed to keep me in the team for 16 years. So I was trying to think back on my memory is not the greatest with netball, but Vicky Wilson, was she, did you take over from her or? No, I played my first year with the Aussie. <laughs> I was with all those legends. I was playing yeah. lineup as them. So um, as I mentioned, you know, that's the best way to get your skills up to scratch is to be surrounded by the people that do it the best. Um, and they were hard on me. They were really hard on me. It's not, kind of the attitude that the, the current Australian team has with younger players. Um, but they were very clicky, very hard on the young ones. And um, I'm grateful for that. It, was a, it wasn't overly friendly environment at the time, but it certainly made me um, work out what I needed to do very quickly. Do you think they saw you as a threat? 
potentially, yeah. Um, but I think they also thought that if I was going to be in that side, I needed to be better than I was. Um, and, you know, if I was on court, they wanted to win too. So they needed to make sure that I was aware that I probably wasn't where I needed to be. So they were hard on me in that regard. But as I said, I'm, I'm so grateful for they did. They did. Yeah. Because, and, and then the dropping from the side also some very good lessons to come from that. So did you take that <clears throat> at the time? Did you take that uh, drop uh, dropping as a positive, I need to work harder, or were you just peeved off? I was peeved off. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, at that stage, I was still um, 20. So yep. um, that, and, and because I hadn't been dropped from a team before, uh, it was one of those, you know, brat moments when you're young and you think you're better than <laughs> you are and you need a life lesson taught to you. Um, so, yeah, I was cranky and why she get to be there and this is ridiculous and, but you, there's only so long that you can sort of wallow, isn't there, before you realise that that's not going to get you anywhere and you've got to turn yourself around. And um, as I said, and I will say forever, I say to so many kids, it's always those difficult lessons when you learn something that, uh, you know, you don't learn much when you're all succeeding and you don't need to challenge yourself at all, do you? No, that's right. Just like what we're going through now in the world with COVID-19, it's teaching businesses how to do things differently. It's teaching people to think about their jobs differently. So yeah, that's one example there from a, a while back for yourself. So how do you get back? What's, what's the method for a shooter? Um, oh, for me, it was not so much, it wasn't related to position so much as related to effort. Um, yeah, okay. I was doing enough. Um, and I probably was doing enough to stay there, but I wasn't doing um, the extras and I wasn't, you know, pushing myself in all the regards that, and because I had a natural talent, I think, you know, that's where you, you differ from athletes that don't, that really have to work hard to get where they wanted to go. And I saw other people working a lot harder than me. Um, and that was, that was the very clear reminder that I probably needed to. And I say this all the time to younger players, getting to the Australian team for me wasn't the challenge, staying there was. Yeah cruise to the top and you've done all the right things is actually staying at the top that is the hardest thing to do because you've got to continually look for ways to raise the bar and to challenge yourself even when you think you're at your best um people around you are looking for ways to improve and get better so you've got to continue to do it yourself so back then so we're talking late 90s early 2000s type time frame was there a was there a national league back then that you went you would compete in to get into as like a, almost like a selection for the national team? Yeah, there was. And um, <coughs> I was playing with the Sydney side then and, and mm -hmm. playing well. Um, and I mean, for me, it was just about working harder. I think I started to run, like actually I hate running to this hate running, but I needed to be fitter and I needed to probably lose a bit of puppy fat. So I ran and ran and ran in the off season and I did a lot more weights and I dropped about four or five kilos and, um, got a lot stronger and a lot fitter. And, I mean, it was fairly obvious that I'd done the work and um, got myself back into the side. And then uh, it was just about continuing that and surrounding yourself with teammates of a similar mind. There's always a few teammates that are quite happy not to do the work that's required and see if they can just fluff their way through it. But I just knew I had to remove myself from that environment, put myself with the other ones if I wanted to continue on the path I was on. Well, that's a good lesson for anyone in any industry, really. Surround yourself with the right people. Yeah, it is. And, I mean, it's, it's very easy to tell which mm. they are. And, you know, later in life it wasn't so much about the, the people with the right on-court work ethic so much as the mental side of it. Um, yep. Once we got to the, the Australian team, 
everyone was good at what they were doing, everyone was fit and the rest of it, but there was certainly some attitudes of people that would whinge a lot or complain or, you know, and those are the people that you wanted to remove yourself from. And mm. it was all about the, the mental side of it later in life once you, you sort of tick all the boxes in the physical aspects. So tell me about from a career perspective. So it's a lot different to, you know, myself going to uni and then getting a job or other people leaving school and going to a job. You went to the, I suppose, the Institute of Sport as like a, almost like a university degree for netball. And then you came out and played in the professional league. But was, was it enough? Could you survive off that? I mean, I think the good thing for me was I was never an academic. I didn't want to go to uni. So um, I was fortunate that I was an athlete because it gave me an avenue to do something. I don't know what I would have done had I not gone to the Institute. Um, I wasn't professional then, but was by no means professional. The best player in the country at that point would have been making about $5,000 for their seasons I was making nothing Um, how did you survive did you have to get a job yeah absolutely came back from um, the Institute of Sport and then took up a traineeship so I was doing a um, sports administration (laughs) remember it was that long ago Um, working within a a company doing um, you know god what were they doing recruitment I think it was sporting recruitment so I was kind of working in that side of it and then going to TAFE and doing bits and pieces where I could because it all had to fit in with um, training, with mm. fitting in and around training, which all of us were doing at the time. And it was a, such a stress. The, the week flying by because, you know, you'd be working all day and then going straight to training at 7 o'clock and getting home at God knows what time and having to do it all over again. So um, I'm certainly not complaining because I know that's where a lot of athletes are at with their careers and what they need to do. But it, it was tough. And uh, when it started to become semi-professional, it certainly helped a lot. Were you, were you jealous at the time of the guys that you know, were oh. playing NRL or whatever and getting paid and not have to have a job? Absolutely. And that was a pipe dream. I honestly didn't think that in my career I would get to that stage that I would be able to be a professional athlete. And it, it seemed to take a long time to get there. But then relatively quickly in the last two or three years of my career, it, um, we turned over into that full professional um, stage. That's why I hung on for dear life. <laughs> I could make a bit of money from my sport finally. That's good. Tell me about the process there. Was there a union? Did the, they did they go in and work with owners? Or how, how does the netball competition structured to, to create income and then split it between ownership and players? Well, so it, the Players Association was established, oh, when would that have been? Maybe early 2000. So before the CBT competition turned into the ANZ Championship in 2007, I think, and that's when we became semi-professional athletes. Um, And there was a players association that was formed before that that just went in a bit heavy hitting on um, obviously the players and, you know, being able to to be able to be paid for the time that we were committing because we were full-time athletes. We were doing everything Mm. full-time men and professional sportsmen were doing um, and still trying to hold down jobs and support families and, um, everything else. So that happened then. And then the Players Association has um, just grown out of sight. And it's, uh, you know, now the players, I think the minimum salary is about 35000 now, um, which is fantastic. So it's continuing to grow. Obviously, Channel Nine's right behind the sport now. Broadcast has never really been an issue for us. Mm. Uh, with so many people playing the game, we've always had broadcaster. But in terms of being able to make some money from them. That's not happened until recently. Yeah, and I was going to say, I remember going watching you play back in the day and 
it was always packed. Always. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the thing about a sport that has so many participants. Mm. It was always a little bewildering to us that it took so long for us to be making money from it because we had such a massive following. But with our sport, it was more about participating and not sitting down and watching it so much. And we had to try and make that happen and make the game exciting, the package around what was going to air exciting so that, um, you know, those people would transition and not just the netball players, but, you know, just sport. Yep, sporting fans. Yeah. And we finally got there. All right. Before we get to the next part of your career, I want to talk about some of your, your accolades. So two world championships. What do you remember about those both accomplishments? <laughs> Yeah, very different. The first one, um, the first one was in 2007, I think, in New Zealand. And I had never been fitter in my life. That particular Australian team, it was the, the World Cup was meant to be in July in Fiji and they had a coup. Ah. It was delayed until November and it was moved to New Zealand. So the first thing we all did when we heard that news was cry because that was another five or six months of training before the World Cup. And um, the Australian coach at the time, Norma Plummer, was one to um, work her athletes very, very hard. And, you know, we were flogged, but we were the fittest we had ever been in our lives. And going into that event, when you're that prepared and you know that every single person in the side is as prepared mentally and physically, you know you're going to win. Now I'd always say you get back what you put in and I just thought there is no way in the world that we're not walking away with the championship here because I know every single person has done every possible thing. The biggest thing that freaked me out before it was Liz Ellis confided in me that she was going to retire after that world championship but didn't tell a soul. So I had to keep that under wraps. And then when the game's going down to the wire and you know your best mate up sure. is going to retire either a winner or a loser... That makes you more nervous than anything else in the whole world. So we ended up winning that game, I think, by two or three. And um, Liz and I just ran to each other and embraced awkwardly long period of time. <laughs> and uh, that was, I mean, that's the, the thing I remember the most about that particular one. And then 2011 was very different. Um, I started the World Cup final and was dragged for um, one of the youngsters in the team who I had pretty much taken under my wing. Um, as, you know, a bit like a mother hen, I suppose, at that stage and really tried to push her through. So, Was that the point of the career where you were at, though, as well? Yeah, it was. It was. So that was um, a year before I finished or two years before I finished with the Diamonds. So um, I was comfortable with that. I knew that transition would come at some stage. Um, and so, you know, I embraced that role and that position. And she went on and won the game for us in double overtime. <laughs> by one and uh, you know I just ran to her and hugged her awkwardly long time as well it's funny how that happens at the end of a big game um, but so very different finals but uh, very special in different ways. So you talked about Liz Ellis so she's one of your best friends how has you know sport transcends that friendship you become mates with someone how that's that's become like lifelong for yourself tell me about how that's transformed you both often on on the pitch. Yeah, I mean, Liz is um, four or five years older than me too. So kind of at every stage of my career, she's been there already. So aside from just being a good mate, great drinking partner and a loose <laughs> she, um she always had great advice for me about the, the part of my career that I was at. And that was no different from when I, when I retired in particular. She, um, she really did 
helped me out a lot in that regard too. But I, I still ring her on a daily basis when I've got any queries about work gigs or anything that come that come up. Um, Liz was the first athlete to really make a name for herself, not just as a netballer, but yeah. just as an athlete and not a female athlete, but an athlete. Um, and she really set the bar there. So she's been fabulous in that advice and paving the way for not just me, but a lot of other um, netballers and athletes under her. So, I mean, she'll be the first one that I always go to for anything. And I'm so glad she's in my corner. That's awesome. Tell me about Commonwealth Games. So World Championships, it's just netball teams playing, but you go to a village in the Commonwealth Games and you get to see lots of different sports and interact. What's the experience like? How, how's it different? Oh, it's unreal. And it's very hard not to lose focus at a Commonwealth <laughs> The problem with our sport is that we are the very, very last gold medal decided. Oh, bugger. The difference, exactly. <laughs> the difference is at a World Cup, it is all about you. But... Yep. With the Australian team, and sadly, the Australian team is quite successful. Day one, there's a gold medal, and everyone's super excited about it. It gets to day 16, no one gives a rat's ass if you win a gold medal. So we we were excited, but we actually have to keep in check for the entire two weeks. And we go from day one right through to the very last day. We compete every second, whatever. So it's not like there's any time for us to, you know, go and... You know, like the swimmers finishing up with 10 days to go. Oh, yeah, and don't they get into it then? And <laughs> Yeah, they want us all to be super quiet for the first week when they're competing and then they don't care about anybody else. <laughs> the swimmers. Um, but the good thing is, though, that when, when you're there, there's tickets always available for the other events to go and support the other Aussies. So, you know, on your days off, you go and jump on the bus and go to the, the swimming or you, you go and watch the gymnastics or the cycling or whatever. So in terms of that, it is quite a, an amazing event to be a part of, that's for sure. What about, so your career, you've obviously got to see some parts of the world that you may not have expected to. Where, whereabouts in the world have you loved when you've travelled for, for sport? Oh, God, so many. I, I mean, the difference too between when we were um, amateurs and professionals means a lot in terms of the difference of being able to travel. So after yeah. the tour that we have with the Diamonds, um, Liz and myself and whoever other wanted to come at the time do a trip somewhere around the world afterwards because we could. We were, um, you know, amateurs. We didn't have to rush back for training or recovery or whatever else. The girls can't do that now. So yeah, okay. they might be all the way over in England, but they've got to come straight back, which breaks my heart. Um, but so we were quite lucky, you know, as much as we whinge about, you know, missing out on a lot of the cash involved in the game from being professional. We did have some huge perks um, you know, because we didn't have to pay for flights. We had to come home eventually. So, you know, they let us just delay them. So, I don't know, we we travelled to so many places for the game that then, you know, it was a, the joys of being able to kick on afterwards. But some of the places we went to for netball, obviously India for the, the Com Games, not somewhere I would have ever wanted yeah. before. Um, fascinating. And I think we saw the very um, tidy it too you know we weren't really out and about too much in real India um, and then you know we went to Jamaica probably every three or four years which is another fascinating place and it's not what you see on cocktail it's nothing like Ames and I took the girls on a trip to the States and we did a cruise through the Caribbean um, three years ago and yeah. uh, and I remember we sat on the beach in uh, in the in Jamaica in the Caribbean, and I turned to Ames and I said, 
Shoal Bay is nicer. Yeah. Where were you? Were you in the grill or Montego? Uh, it was near. We we boarded at Falmouth. I'm not sure exactly yeah. where that is in Jamaica, yeah. but we yeah it was about an hour's drive from there, and it was just a little beach, and it was really pebbly and grainy, and yeah. the water was nice and it was lovely. But you go to Shoal Bay at Port Stephens, and I reckon it's way better. Yeah, it's very much like that. We we did have a tour to Barbados one year too, which. Barbados is fun, nicer. It's actually amazing. And um, yeah, see, I had my kids with me though. Yeah, yeah, very different. <laughs> We're on tour though too, so it's not like enjoying the bars or anything. But um, I remember Liz and I both up at four, three or four o'clock in the morning. We thought, I'm not fighting jet lag when I'm in heaven like this. I'm yeah. Going so you know, we just made the most of that sort of stuff. Cool. So tell me about your your career. Your, your, your tracking along, you're playing semi-professional and then in the end professional netball, you've represented your, your country. Were you at any stage planning your post-sporting career? When did that start to kick in? Uh, yes, I was. Um, probably four or five years before I retired, they started to include welfare managers and with the Australian team. And I was always in very close contact with ours about impending retirement. Um, and that was one of her roles as well, was to make sure that she had a good relationship with the older players and was in contact with them and preparing them for that retirement. Well, that's, that's interesting because it should be all the players because the reality for you guys is that your career ends on injury, yep. on the coach or yep. whoever making a decision that you're cut or you get to end it on your terms. And that doesn't happen that often. No, and I mean, the good thing, she was there for whoever wanted to talk to her. No two yeah, good. And we used, it's amazing once that role was in place, how much she was utilised. It was yeah, a bit. incredible. Um, but obviously, knowing that I would retire at some point, when it's hard with injuries, you don't know that they're coming. But um, we were in close contact and had many a, a, a coffee or a wine and discussed what, you know, I would potentially want to do once I retire. And that just made me feel a little at ease because I didn't know. Again, I didn't know what the hell I was going to do. Um, but one of the best things she said to me was, in the two or three years or whatever it is that you've got going or you, you think you might still play the game, make the most of the relationships that are around you because mm, you're smart. surrounded by corporates. You're surrounded by, you know, heads of sporting organisations or government bodies or whoever, and you don't know when you might need those people. So you're very, very lucky in the people that you're surrounded by. So start to develop some good relationships there. Um, and I have a saying that people will get their next job from their network, not from a job ad, not from a network, not from a recruiter. 80% is my uh, estimated guess. Yeah, absolutely. And this is why it's so important, no matter what happens to you in your career, not to ever burn your bridges or to... Mm -hmm to throw a tantrum and, and be a brat about it because you just don't know when you're going to need those people. Mm -hmm. And that was another lesson that I learned early on that I'm so grateful I did. I had great relationships with everyone around me and it made that transition so much easier. Um, but I didn't want anything to do with netball once I retired. I wanted clean slate. It had been something I'd done for 25 years just to go and do something else. So what was that going to be? Well, we discussed all sorts of things, opening a wine bar or, you know, going to hit up some of the, um, you know, the corporates that I'd worked with and doing some events or something or other. Um, it just, I just didn't want it to be netball. Um, and so 
that's why it was really important for me to develop some of those relationships because I thought, you know, I'll be using, definitely using one of them once I retire. But it's funny how um, when you're so good at something and you know it so well, <laughs> we want to keep you involved. And for me, as those opportunities started to come up, I thought it's crazy to think that I want to start at the bottom when I could be starting at the top. Of, you know of my career in a just in a different form so um, as much as I wanted to walk away it seemed ridiculous and I was sucked right back in again in the two things that I vowed I would never do which was coach and commentate <laughs> well you're doing it like a great job I don't I don't see the coaching stuff but the commentary stuff you do a great job not only yeah. in netball but on the sports Sunday shows on uh, channel nine those sorts of things you've really transitioned well into that how do you, how did that happen um, again, was my mate Liz um, and a lot of people around me, it was one of those things I never wanted to do because I was never comfortable being the centre of attention. Whilst I was the captain of, captain of sides and stuff a lot, I didn't like having to stand up and do the speeches and, and all that sort of stuff. So that was the reason I never wanted to go into commentary because I just thought I'd be crap at it and I didn't want to be in that position. But everyone around me, in, in particular my um, welfare manager that I was talking to a lot about retirement, she said, this is where I see you with a big circle around it, and it was media. <laughs> and I said, that is the last thing I'm going to do. I can tell you it's the last thing I'm going to do, but everybody wanted me to do it because they thought I'd be good at it. Um, so it is a lot about listening to, I think, other people too that have been there that know you. I think sometimes you just get caught in your own fears and you don't want to get out of your little bubble or your comfort zone. Do you love it now, though? I love it. Yeah. I've got the best job in the world. There's no two ways about it. I get to travel the country. I get to see all my netball mates all the time and talk about a game I love that I don't have to train. I drink wine instead. <laughs> in those places. So it's, it's good, but it's taken a long, long time to feel comfortable in it. And I still, um, I still ask a lot of questions um, and want feedback. Um, Tell me about the preparation, because I think what most people wouldn't understand is... So you rock up to a netball game and you commentate, great. That, that sounds easy. That's half an hour or an hour of your time. It's so much more. Tell me about the preparation, what you do. Yeah, there is. I mean, last year I was fortunate in that I was on a plane every single weekend the entire season flying to Perth or Adelaide or wherever to call a game. And I've got a four-year-old, so it's hard to get... I was going to say, how's work-life balance go there? Yeah, it's, it's tough. Um, I'm very, very organised, as every parent would be. But um, once I get the schedule for the year, I, you know, lock in what I do with my daughter on those weekends. I fly my parents down to look after her or, you know, I take her with me. All, but I plan that months in advance and book that all in so that's under control. But last year I was on the road every single weekend. And it's actually easier for me to do that because I get to have whatever the flight time is of prep. Um, Good use of that time before the game so you know it's not I know a lot of my job is reactive because I'm commentary role I've got to call what's happening but you've also got to be able to you know pull some stats from last week or what this player did or what they're looking like for the season um, so you've got to go through all those stats and that can take a, an hour two hours of just solid work and looking at stats and going through it all and and then obviously reviews and stuff after the game on the flight home and um, I was doing the I've been doing the netball show for the last three years as well so it's always prep and getting across all games over the record to make sure you guys into it more than just the game. 
Yeah, cool. All right, and so tell me about some of the other things that you do. What else do you do apart from just working commentary? So bits of everything. The, the thing I'm um, going to get my head around this year is keynote speaking, which is my biggest fear of all time. Um, but I get asked to do it almost on a weekly basis and I say I'm unavailable and lie to people <laughs> who don't want to do it. Um, so I am in the midst of writing, putting something together and um, getting on board and doing that because that is a big avenue um, for me to be able to earn money and to spread my wings a bit. I started emceeing some stuff, but that was only two years ago and that was Liz again that forced me to do it. She actually told the company that I would do it before asking <laughs> forced me into it and then I realized it's actually not that hard and it's quite enjoyable so again you know you just gotta listen to people sometimes um as you mentioned before we ended up doing a bit of a show with the centurions yeah tell 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 the listeners about the centurions oh, god but so the creator of the centurions sue gordian is also a commentator with channel nine she's a great mate of mine and she rang me one day and said i've had this great idea i want to get sherelle you and um liz and I together, and I'm going to, like, as the Centurions, as, you know, you've played 100 games. There is one other, but um, Vicky was living in New Zealand, I think, at the time. Um, and she said, I want to basically do a sportsman's night, but with you guys, get us on stage, just talk about, you know, you guys are such good entertaining talent, get you all together, have a laugh, and, um, you know, it'll be good fun. So I said, I'm on board. I love the idea of that. Sounds great fun. Anyway, from there it turned into this full-on um, stage show with an intermission and everything um, and got bigger than Ben-Hur. We had production companies. We had our first one at a sold-out Enmore Theatre in Sydney. Um, we then did a High Sense Arena. Um, we did the... Wow. Uh, God, what was the one in Melbourne? The theatre in Melbourne, I can't even think of it. And then we finished our last one at the Theatre in Perth. Um, at the end of last year. So um, to all to sell out crowds, which was a bit crazy. We were talking to a touring company about taking it on the road and um, it was... I was going to say, is it coming back? Well, I think Paul Gordy, who was uh, the mastermind behind it all and basically did everything to kind of get it off the ground, was a bit mentally exhausted. Trained. <laughs> and, over it and a bit over us. So um, we pulled the pin on it, but not to say that it can't come back at some stage but good fun and again my god talk about being out of your comfort zone on stage and singing and dancing oh god so back back in the early 2000s when you were playing netball could you ever envisage yourself doing things like that not in a million years i would never ever ever have thought that i would be thinking about doing keynote speaking being on stage doing commentary emceeing events never in a million years never that's amazing mm -hmm. have you had any training have you been doing anything to get better at those things um, no, I mean, the good thing is um, Liz is one of the best people in the world at that sort of yep. stuff. She is the master. So um, certainly pick her brain about it. And I've done a few joint things with her. Um, and on those ones, I make very big notes about what Liz is doing and how she operates and tidbits and take stuff away from that. So I've been very, very lucky to learn from one of the best in the business in that regard. Um, so, you know, in terms, and in terms of training, it's, just, it's probably just taking it on and, um, you know, learning from your mistakes or, or what works well yep getting feedback absolutely all right so we have one structured question on this podcast so we yeah. put you in a time machine so if we could go back to 20 year old kath cox and you could give uh, give her advice today given what you know 
what would that advice be? I've made some bad decisions in my life <laughs> of where to play the game. I left Sydney um, about four years into the National League to go to Perth for the first financial sort of... Um, so was it dollars driven, that decision? Dollar driven. Yep. Uh, it was an absolute nightmare two years. Um, lost all confidence and was in the worst position I've ever been in my life. I had the worst case of the years ever. And again, I did that later in my career again for financial um, reward. And it, it was again the worst decision I ever made in my life. So I would say those, but in both of those cases, I learned very, very valuable lessons. Yep. Would have set me up for the rest of my career. So whilst I would you know, probably go back and say, don't do those, I wouldn't have learned those valuable life lessons. So um, I, you know, I think those, those setbacks and those hard times are the, the most important things that you can happen to you because you just learn so much from them about yourself and um, you know, what needs to happen from then on in. Excellent career advice. And thank you so much for giving up your time and, and being on our Career Conversations podcast, Catherine Cox. Thanks for having me. It's been nice to talk to an adult in isolation. Thanks. <laughs> no worries. Stay safe.